The following program is rated MAL. It contains strong language and is intended only for mature audiences. Green flag waving for the always exciting Sheldon Hutchild. He'll bounce the right rear off the wall with turn four. Lot one for Sheldon Hutchild. Quick time! Off turn four. Quick time! Ten, zero, three, zero. Second lap time for David is quick. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of Quick Time, the podcast. We got the whole gang back with us. Brad is back from his hiatus in Oregon. And obviously, Josh is here, but we got two big name guests. We've been touting this guy for ever since we started this fucking podcast to get the myth, the legend that is J.J. Riggins on the show. Oh, that was the first thing I said I wanted when you're like, hey, you want to do a podcast? I'm like, oh, I know the first guest I want. So... Josh Riggins is here with us. JJ's here, guys. How are you guys doing? Real good. Awkward silence. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of awkward yeah, silence. We've only talked about this for like two years to get this happen. We even talked to you at I-80 Speedway one day, and we got some stories, but then we just never pulled the trigger to get the gang together to do this. Hey, I'm a little starstruck right here because he's a, he's a legend. Hall of Famer, Nebraska Sprint Car Hall of Fame. Talk about that real quick. I mean, how big of a deal is that for you? Well... Nobody starts out with that intent, but it's a really great honor. Um, when you look at the people that's already been inducted, and then you get to join that group, but probably the neatest part about it is it really the final chapter of your race deal, race career, and you can kind of close the book on it and say, okay, uh, I can move on now. Josh, do you? I mean, growing up, did you know how badass oh, of a yeah. guy your your grandpa was? Yeah, we used to go all the time when I was younger, and it was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I, I just remember him as a kid. He just like be fifth and just mop up on people at the end of the races, and um, it was a lot of fun, you know, watching as a kid, you know. So, sorry at the beginning. How'd you get in? How'd you get into racing? <laughs> Well, I actually bought a 52 Pontiac from Pete Lycom, and they were going to do a uh, an official race. Well, uh, one of the officials decided he didn't want to do this figure eight race, and that's really where I got started. And uh, it was really a clown show, and uh, <laughs> uh, I never did figure out that you were supposed to yield to the right, and then when you came back around, you're supposed to yield to the left, and that's really where it got started. So wait, you're saying figure eight racing? I thought it was an oval. Like I don't think you, I didn't know you ever raced figure eight. Yeah. Like what was the kind of cars you said? It was a '52 Pontiac straight eight. Big old boat, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'd knock the radiator out of it every week, and <laughs> yeah, block yeah. up the eight part of it. <laughs> so, was figure eight racing a big deal here here in Lincoln uh, in that era, or? Well, it was one of the things that uh, the old Midwest Speedway tried to bring on to attract more people, and it was always at the end of the races, and um, it went along for about 
year and a half until somebody really got hurt seriously and then they pretty much they got to going too fast and they pretty much stopped it at that point i have a question for josh over here i mean we're talking about jj he's got tons of stories but i hate to say but josh is one of my favorite guys to be around i mean he is awesome when he comes in the shop. Is there something wrong with you? I mean, this oh. is Josh we're talking about. <laughs> but what I want to know is, so you came over to my house for the podcast. I didn't even recognize him. I was like, who is this guy? Like, I was like, hey, you kind of look like Frank Galusha. And he's like, yeah, I kind of. But so I want to hear what this diet is because I want to be on it. Oh, it's like I eat a uh, egg and like one piece of sausage for breakfast. And, um, like three bites of food for lunch and like three bites of food for dinner. So, and, uh, lots of water. I do have a cup of coffee every day, but no soda, no beer. So what about like workouts? (sighs) Workouts are in there. We went running tonight, but I'm real slow. So, um, (laughs) but yeah, that golf, um, so what made, what made you want to do it? Low impact stuff. Um, I really just knew I was too heavy in the car. Um, had some weight weight problems where my legs started screwing up on me. So doctor told me I need to lose some weight. Um, I had like gout and stuff like that, and my feet were flared up all the time, and it just was getting painful. I work as a machinist, so I'm on my feet all day, and it was like, well, I got to do something while I'm still young before I'm all crippled up. So I did. Well, it's working. I mean... <laughs> That's wow. <laughs> yeah, getting there. Two weeks ago, we touched on that topic uh, on our podcast, and uh, one of these guys said that you said that you've lost 80 pounds, and, and it's changed the way your cards reacted. Yeah. For us dipsticks that sit in the grandstand, can you elaborate on that a little bit? What 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 are you feeling in that change? Yeah, it was – well, the first week, all I did was fly around in the seat because uh, <laughs> I wasn't used to it. I was – Always kind of tight in the car. Um, I'm one of them guys that really likes to be tight on the belts and everything else. And uh, it was it was just a weird deal. So we we poured a new seat insert to get me a little more comfy. And then then I started realizing a lot of stuff like uh, bar rates had kind of changed um, just because the car the car's weight and um, Mostly bar rates, I'd say. It just we had to mess with ride heights a little bit too, just to get the car down. Because before I'd just get in there and it kind of put it where I needed to be, and um, yeah, I just we we had a little few things to figure out. But it's with shock package hasn't really changed or um, wheel spacing or nothing like that. But but the torsion bars have definitely changed, and the car racks really good. I got a new car from Brian Schnee. And that thing's just a monster. It's welded together really well and just beautiful welds. We clear-coated it because of it, but it's just the nice thing I've ever driven. So, Josh, you mentioned that you're you're doing the running and you're you're kind of slow at it. I'm reading uh, JJ's uh, bio here in the the Hall of Fame, and you got black flagged for being too slow. First time I ever got – they called them modified then. And, yeah, I couldn't – this friend of mine bought this car, and he gave a whopping $50 for it, so that tells you everything right there. <laughs> but I couldn't catch up to the pack and so for a heat race. And so in return, um, they just black flagged me, and 
kind of drove it in the pits or herded it, and uh, that was that night. <laughs> so we kind of went from there. So what changed with that car? That I assume you picked it, picked up the pace eventually, and did you get a bigger motor? Did you what what uh, did you have to do to, did, or was it just seat time that got you familiar with it and got going? Well, I finally just kind of branched out on my own, and um, I bought a frame, and then I had a guy by the name of John Burke. You're starting to see some of uh, their family pictures show up on Facebook, and I had John Burke, which was a machinist, and John kind of helped me update it, and that was really my first car that uh, we could be competitive but um, in 1971, which is forever ago, um, Lloyd Beckman won 17 A-features that year. Well, I knew this car wasn't an A-feature car. So uh, return, I'd sandbag and run the B, but we won 17 Bs with that car that year. And then we ran second in the C-feature at the Knoxville Nationals with that thing. That's not a bad deal there, pulling no. up to Knoxville and running second in a C feature. Well, if you'd have been there that night, you would have swore we won the A main. But. <laughs> <laughs> so when when did you move to, like, is, was that, you said they were a modified. I'm not, I'm not guessing they're like the IMCA modifieds we see out here no. now. It's, it's like, a, like the super modifieds back yeah. in the day. They, they called them super modifieds, and then they called them hoodoos, and that's when you start seeing the kind of the offset roadsters and stuff that uh, the welds had perfected down in Kansas City. How much of it was actually a stock car, like a stock model of a car, or was it there, or if you did whatever you wanted to do to it? Yeah, car? you could do whatever you wanted to. The, the big deal was that if you had a... Buzz box welder, a cutting torch, and a grinder, you could make one. And, I mean, that uh, obviously lasted until Joe Saldana brought the Roadster back from California. And that was an all-chrome ollie car, all heliarc welded. And that's when things really start changing around the Lincoln area. Is that when it started to more look like a sprint car then? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Was this right around the time when, like, the 360s were, were taking hold? or? Oh, no, that was way before that. They were, like, 302s and 305s. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm a little older than these two, but uh, <laughs> back in the day when I would, every Sunday we'd go to Midwest Speedway, and that's where I got to know JJ, or I know of JJ. Um, but, yeah, they were, back in those days, they were basically, in my opinion, they looked a lot like a sprint car, but they were just uh, – um, they were called modifieds, and they had like 302s, 305s. Uh, a lot of them were carbonate, carbureted. So let me get this. They were 302s, and you went every Sunday night. Yeah, we can't get your ass out to Eagle for a 305 race? Well, that's because that's all we knew. That was like the cream of the crop back then. <laughs> now, it's, now it's like, uh, I'm not going to go there. It's uh, No, I'm not going out to Eagle. Anytime 305, soon. that's three more cubic inches than yeah. a 302. But back then, that was the the class to go watch. And now it is the class to go watch is no, the three hundred five. The only class to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing against three hundred fives. It's just they're not my cup of tea. So I have a question for for Josh. Um, you know, I've known you since you've started racing, or not yeah. started racing, but basically Rogue started. Bus, yeah. Um, you were a young gun coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, sixteen years old. 
straight, you know, straight off of getting your driver's license. Like we were all counting down the days. How much has it changed since when you were 16 to now? Like you started with a group of like Frank Galusha, Billy Alley, uh, Jack Dover. You guys all kind of came up together. How much has it changed now than what it was like back then? I don't think it really has. The cars haven't changed much. Um, it, you know, the wing rules are still the same. I mean, there's, uh, it hasn't changed that much. Um, I, I think the, the thing that, you know, probably has changed the most is just the, you know, cubic inches. Um, obviously that, that plays a big difference. Um, it's a little sad to see the 360 thing not as strong as it is, but I mean, even I'm fighting a situation. I've been waiting on pistons forever and stuff. It isn't that we don't want to go do it, but it's it's hard to get the stuff gathered up with COVID and everything else to to even to make it. You know, it's um, that's why I think uh, like Dover and them guys have stepped up to the 410 because they're actually racing at a purse they need and a. They can get the nights out of the motors now where it used to be a 410. You could only get, you know, maybe five nights out of a good 410 where now it's more like 10 or 12 because got enough horsepower that you don't have to beat the motors as hard as you once did. So um, it's it, it's about the same. Like I said, it's I think the I think the big thing is, is there's a lot of parity. You know, when I first started, there was a. A lot of like, uh, you know, Stevensons and older stuff out there, you know, where nowadays um, the cars haven't changed really at all for the last, since about I started, about the last 10 years. So you can even take something a little bit older and be competitive. So, because there just hasn't that much change. But how, JJ, how have you seen things change from, from oh. when you were uh, running to what they are now? Well, the biggest change that I've seen is the fact of the safety aspect of it. The old low back seats gone. Um, you know, now they have uh, the Hans. Uh, helmets have tremendously improved. Um, used to have to wear a hook to hold your head up because the helmet weighed so much. And, um, but really... What I've seen um, is the big safety deal. Um, tethers, everything involved there. Um, you know, uh, it was just sad of what happened that really made uh, come to that. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing that that we've changed, and I kind of heard the story before, but you guys were the first ones to invent an inboard brake system on a sprint car. Now you see it all the time. Everybody has it. Kind of, mm-hmm. kind of. What went through your mind? How, what were you looking at the, at the car? Like, maybe you should just move this in here. And well, what kind of mad scientist stuff was going on back then? Well, there was a guy by the name of Terry O'Terrell and I, and we were going down the street one day, and we were following this Jaguar, and something went out in front of this Jaguar, and this guy slammed on the brakes, and instead of the thing cambering, reverse cambering, it just the tail of the car went down. So we followed this guy, and we told him, hey, you know, what made it do that? And we looked at it, and then we took the idea to Arnie Rudder. And in return, Arnie had a complete machine shop in Cortland, Nebraska. And Arnie is the guy that actually made it. And so um, 
it was really interesting to watch that transpire because you got this supposedly at that time the low class was the 360s compared to the open and all of a sudden these guys show up with this inboard break laverne nance is the first guy that really saw it and uh, laverne asked what it was and we told him and and uh, he watched the car that night, and then he came over and asked Arnie, he said, can I take some pictures of it? <laughs> and it wasn't very long, and Laverne was producing them. But it was really a, quite, a, quite a deal because you didn't have the splines there. Uh, you had to tap the axle. I mean, it was quite a process to actually make now, there's a lot. Was there a lot of testing, like, okay, this week we went out with this thing, and yeah, maybe we can, we can make it a little bit better by doing this than a week later? The biggest part of it was we couldn't figure out the size of the caliper. So one week it wouldn't have very good brakes at all, and the next week it would stop on a dime. And <laughs> that took a while to figure out which caliper we really needed to make the car do what we wanted it to do. Yeah, that's a good question. The, you say back in the day it was more about being innovative. Is oh, it still yeah. that way nowadays? No. It seems like it's more here's your stock item. You have to race uh, this. Go pull it off the, the yeah. shelf at Speedway, and here you go. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, today, all it is is um, everything's over the counter. And um, when Laverne Nance start mass-producing cars and then the gambler chassis company start doing it, that's when this thing really start changing. Um, early 80s is when that really start transpiring. How how much did your cars weigh back then? I mean, let's go when you were driving the fourteen J out of Midwest. Do you do you did you weigh your cars? You know how much that you know how much you weigh. <laughs> are, are they different? Uh, what was the difference between then and now? Oh God, they weighed seventeen fifty. Yeah. Uh, to now they're twelve. Whoa. So you didn't obviously didn't have any titanium back then. Probably no. every once in a while I had some aluminum. Uh, once in a while. Once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, everything was uh, big, strong. Uh, the old, big old, bulky international spindles, and I kind of think of that, and then I look at Josh's car and go, oh, my God, what were we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> so and, weight wasn't, wasn't an issue for you guys back then? I mean, well, it, you didn't think about making it lighter and lighter and lighter? Or? Well, actually, in 1977, the first guy that really thought of that was Doug Wolfgang over at Bob Trossel's shop. And really what Doug did, he basically, uh, and along with Bob Trossel, put Don Maxwell out of business because those cars were 1,700-pound cars that Maxwell was building. And so that really kind of started. The, but the deal with the 360, you had to have steel wheels, and they, you had to have a spring on the front. All of that added weight. And so you can just imagine how the weight just kept going up. So back then, were you spending any time drilling holes in, like, the, the steering arm? Or um, were you making your spark plug wires a little shorter? You didn't really waste any time doing that. A little bit later on, then that kind of stuff yeah. started happening. Yeah, um, we didn't. Um, Arnie was real big on you got to be careful of where you're drilling holes. And... Um, so uh, you didn't have the nice aluminum arms they have nowadays. They were steel, and, uh, you know, everything was just uh, big. The, the real thought was into it was 
you wanted to make it strong and you wanted to make it tough and so if you did crash it you could straighten it and well now it's just a throwaway deal well, there in that one era there, they were drilling holes in everything. I mean, your your seats were getting holes drilled in them to lose some weight. Uh, um, everywhere they could drill holes, the floorboard, everything was just to try to save an ounce or a pound. Or uh, yeah, it was crazy how much time they spent on on making those cars lighter before the the weight rule actually uh, came in effect. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, really. Uh, Probably the guy that really pushed it over the edge to make a weight rule was probably Sammy Swindell. Yeah. yeah. Poor Sammy Swindell. Absolutely. <laughs> he was an innovator. <laughs> the guy, the guy's pretty darn smart. <laughs> Jeff Swindell was another one that um, he would spend hours just to save a pound on something. He, was, he always told stories about how he was constantly drilling on something just to try to save a little bit of weight. Well, you just do what Josh did, just lose weight, and then yeah. and you, you lost 80 pounds off the car. <laughs> okay, I should know this answer, but I don't. Is there a weight rule on the 305s out at Eagle? Yeah, it's, it's like 1450 1450? or something. Yeah, with divers, so it's... Can't make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had to put a fire bottle on and some stuff because, yeah, I went psycho and... You know, spent titanium, and you know, oh, yeah. I like to spend money, you know, that I don't have. I thought there so, was no titanium stuff on, on on the 305s. Well, they're, yeah, bolt stops, anything that isn't rotating. Okay, rotating, you can't have it. Okay, aluminum or that's lighter than titanium. So why spend all this money on titanium bolts and stuff if you still need to add weight because of, why, why don't you just use a steel bolt? where I want to. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. See, that's why I sit in the grandstands instead of down there yeah, in the pits because yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't know stuff like that. But that's, that's interesting. Okay, guys, I'm going to jump in here real quick, and we're going to take a quick break. But we'll be right back with more stories with the Riggins. Join Stars photographer B.A. and off-ice official Gene Cotter for Thunderstruck, the unofficial Lincoln Stars podcast. We'll be talking with your favorite Lincoln Stars players, coaches, and alumni. Oh, it was a great night, yeah. Beat, beat them in their own rink. Just before the buzzer, it was something special for sure. I don't, I don't want to call it a surprise because I knew that there was uh, a great, rich history for hockey here in Lincoln. But uh, I was, I was really happy to see the fans come back in droves and and be such a great supporter for us. I might have to throw my roommate on the bus. Uh oh. I think Sato doesn't have the best tape jobs. He actually just spray painted all his sticks white um, on the bottom of them. I think uh, he's copying some some NHL or he's looking up to, but I don't know. I think it's dusty. I think a lot of guys think it's sick, though. <laughs> to let him in penalty minutes, back before they handed out those little 10-minute wussy misconducts on everything, with 265, <laughs> Thunderstruck the podcast all season long, right here on the Anchor app or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Hey guys, Dan Taylor with Tailored Computers and Repair, and we all know Christmas is just around the corner, so I've got a couple of ideas for you. If it's a youngster that's looking to stream, maybe do a little bit of gaming, maybe a young adult that's headed to college for the first time, or an older adult that's headed back for continuing education, I have two identical HP ProBook 640 G2 laptops. These are 14-inch screens, so they're not too big, they're going to fit perfect in a backpack, and they're really, really light. They've both been upgraded to the maximum amount of RAM 
RAM, which is 16 gigs, and they both come with iCore 3 processors that max out at 2.3 gigahertz. These are awesome laptops. I'm really impressed with the way that they are running after the upgrades that I've done to them, and they're available right now for just $450 each. Give me a call or shoot me a text message, 402-659-5641. You can also email me at taylorcomputersandrepair.com. This is the Dump and Chase podcast. We're trying to model ourselves after what you guys have done a little bit. Voice of the Phantoms and friend of the show, Mr. Matt Lipsack. I, I along for the ride and perhaps provide some modicum of adult supervision here, although really... That's a lost cause at this point. We welcome back Phantoms President Andrew Goldman. It went smoother than it did with Matt. I want that (laughs) added. I want that added. shaking your head now for i'm agreeing with you because he has absolutely killed us this year well so far finger guns has meant sam shut up so yeah that's that's not helping i'm trying to process okay check out the dump and chase podcast every wednesday on western reserve radio youtube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts listen that like was frightening Three wide adrenaline rush. Lucas Oil American Sprinkler Series invades Boone County Raceway in Albion, Nebraska. Friday, July 1st. It's the Norfolk Transmission and Muffler Boone County Challenge. See ASCS stars like Blake Hawk, Dwayne Johnson, Matt Covington, and Dylan Westbrook take on Nebraska's top talent along with IMCA League models, Bob Lives, and NCSA. Friday, July 1st, go great with Bob Lives at 7 Racing at 8 p.m. Tickets on sale at BooneCountyRaceway.com. It's the Lucas Oil American Sprinkler Series National Tour at Boone County Raceway on Friday, July 1st. Welcome back to Quick Time the Podcast. Now let's continue our conversation with Josh and JJ Riggins. So JJ, you you started off here at Midwest Run Eagle. When did you make the trek up to Knoxville? I mean, oh, I uh, my first trip to Knoxville was 1970, and Joe Saldana probably gave me the best advice that I at that time in racing and he told me to stay to the inside of the racetrack and he said when you get going good enough i'll tell you when to move out to the next lane not the fast lane just the next lane i went all year joe never came back and told me to move out. <laughs> i mean it was bad because <laughs> so i've always heard that if you wanted to make somewhere make your name in racing you had to go run knoxville and you have to win at knoxville was was that true back in then or well, I, I think Knoxville is a total unique place, and you still hear them talk about it. That place is all of its own, and if you don't run that thing on a weekly basis, it is really, really hard to get on to Knoxville. Um, you, you just, it's just the whole thing in general, the speed, um, the way it's tight getting into one, tight getting off of four, and then sweep off of two, and the sweep into three, and momentum. Uh, there's just a lot that goes on there. Um, really, to tell you the truth, I think Knoxville, um, to some degree, is overrated. I really do. They uh, Brandon always hits on that, that it's everyone says it's great racing, but really, once they get spread out, it's not much the, you see. The race is over in two laps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know that you did most of your racing in, in Nebraska and you obviously ventured out to Knoxville and probably Houston's, I would assume Jackson, where did you do most of your racing? Was it sunset or you not sunsets? Cause that was more of a late model Midwest Eagle. Did you ever venture out to like mid continent or red cloud or uh, those places? Um, I've been to mid continent. Um, uh, 
that was an experience with Fred Aiden and uh, that 4J car, oh, yeah. which now Speedway owns. I just heard that today. Uh, anyway, um, I've been to Belleville. I've been to Topeka. Um, you know, just generally the Midwest. Which one was your favorite one to race at? The one you won at? <laughs> well, I always felt the easiest one was Eagle. Why I that? really did. Uh, well, the banks, for one thing, and it's short, and um, it all happens real quick, and you just really got to be up on the car and and drive it. But I, I, I've always really kind of liked uh, Eagle. So in the opposite, if, if was there a track that you went to that you just didn't like to go to, but you had to for whatever reason, points or whatever your car wanted to go no, to? You didn't never. really have a car, a track you didn't like to go to? No. Um, the first uh, 360 show they ever ran at Knoxville, we won. The first 360 show they ever ran at Sunset, uh, we won. First 360 show they ever ran at Beatrice, we won. So... Uh, you always told me that it didn't matter where you raced. You wanted to win. Didn't care. Once you got out of the car, once you got there, got to the track, you wanted to win. It didn't. It wasn't coming in second. Well, Josh could probably tell you more war stories. Than <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't go to racetrack for a social gathering. Um, I think it's business, and um, I want Josh to do the very best that he can. And... Um, and I think in order to do that, you have to really pay attention what's going on all night. Um, I'm, I'm not the person you want to come to the racetrack and have a conversation with. I've, I've seen you two guys go at it at the racetrack before. What? I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like the Tuttles. It's American Chopper. <laughs> yeah. It gets that brutal? I, I never heard this. Yeah. Yeah. It, it took me like uh, probably 30 years to understand that we – think too much alike so therefore it can be hard to uh to work together or something you know is i've learned a lot of patience i guess and maybe he has too but yeah it's it, it at times it's been a little little bit intense you know both of us want to do good and we we don't like to not do good and i have done my fair share of not doing good so it's easy to get frustrated. Well, guess. you're running pretty good now. I mean, yeah, the car's looking good. Um, we got Father's Day coming up this weekend, and uh, didn't you win a race on Father's Day yeah, like two, we three did years a ago? Years ago, and for whatever reason, I've uh, ever since my uh, daughter Gemma's been born, we've always done well. Like I won't say we we have won or like last year, I think we ran like fifth or something. Um, but for whatever reason, we just really go good on Father's Day. Always seems like have a good night every time. So, um, hoping to take advantage of that this weekend. You know, so I don't know why. It's just maybe it's just far enough in the season. I kind of hit my stride or whatever. But it, it's always a lot of fun, and that was a really good time here a couple years ago. We did that and put smiles on everybody's faces, and you know all that stuff. And one way to get your daughter, she's probably wanting you to do well so she gets to be on the podium and the pictures and stuff that, like that. That makes true. sense. Yeah. She's uh, she's not going to be there this weekend. She's at Camp Kataki, and she's without power. So I'm a little uh, worried about that. I'm like, man, I, I hate camping. I lived in a camper for a while, and it's like, I don't want to. Uh-uh. No power camping? Uh-uh. My allergies, I wouldn't last probably a day. <laughs> I would oh. hike back to Yeah, you're too much of a puss, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I got a funny story real quick. Yeah, go. One of my favorites. Uh, one time my grandpa called your shop. Oh, this this can't be good. And he pretended to stutter, and he was like, "Hello, hello, hello." You know, I can't really do it. He can, but um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, you guys, it was like one before I eighty one of them three sixty shows, and everybody's trying to get stuff buttoned up first part of April, and he was waiting for you guys to come out and install, and he he starts into his stutter act, and you, who 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 is this? And he goes, did I fucking stutter? This is JJ Riggins. When are you coming to letter my race car? I'll fall on the floor. I'm like, oh, he'll be out tomorrow to do it. Like, Josh is scared to death of my grandpa. It's like, oh, this is bad. Like, he's probably at home, like, not going home tonight, just out there cutting our vinyl out, you know? No, I get to your shop, and usually the car is, like, pristine. Like, and JJ's hovering around, and I'm like, I got to bring a knife out to cut something, and I'm like, and he's looking at you like, you better not fuck this up. It's like, <laughs> oh, this ain't good. <laughs> yeah, it's like you'll be fine. And he goes, I come back from my first time going to install over at your shop, and he goes, he goes, what took you so long? And I, I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, I kind of thought this would happen. You get starstruck when you go over there. I go, he goes, so did you go see his basement? And I said, yeah. And he goes, yep. He goes. I knew the first time you go over there, you'd be asking JJ all these questions and stuff. And it was, my install was only supposed to be like two hours. I think I came back six hours later, and Nate was like, "What happened?" <laughs> well, I put the uh, the tail tank number on crooked, and I know you oh, are yeah. big. Uh, you're one of the pickiest guys on tail tank numbers. No, it has to be a certain way. It has, I to, agree. It has Nate, to be a certain way. Nate ha- Nate literally has to put it on because I'm like. I'm not touching it. You get to put it on. <laughs> what is it about the tail tank numbers that? Well, you ever notice once in a while you'll see a car and the numbers are not tilted forward and it looks like it's fallen off the tank? That just looks horrendous to me. And so I always want them tilted forward a little bit. And just- I think it has to fit the contour of the tail. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to have the, the front of the number shorter than the back of the number because the tank – is wider at the front and it's narrow at the back. So you got to, the numbers got to fit the contour of the, of the tank, in my opinion. And there are people that screw that up a lot. And it does drive me crazy. Too. Josh. J- JJ's tank numbers though are massive. Like it takes up the whole tank. Like, so that's the hard part. <laughs> Isn't that what you're supposed to do when you put a tank up there? You're supposed to cover the damn thing up. Just like the wing, you're supposed to cover, put the number big enough so you can read it from the grandstands. Nate taught me one time that the way I do, the way you do JJ's tank numbers is you line it up off the frame rail, right? And I'm used to it, what I think is straight. To it's not straight. Is not straight. Not. And what's funny is you are, it's JJ and Mark Birch are the two people that you both have to have it that way. And it was the first time I ever did the tank, and I'm like, and then I think you called the next day. You're like, you got to come fix this tank. And I was like, what? And Nate, Nate explained it to me. I'm like, he goes, you have to do it this way because this is the old school way. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, the guy that actually taught me the way it should look was actually Jim Schumann. And, you know, of course, back then, everything was hand-painted. And um, so Schumann was showing it to me and i always matter of fact the way that number is is exactly to jim schumann's 
uh, way he did it back in the 80s. Because it is a pretty custom number. Like, it's not a font that you just pick. No, it's it's no, handmade. It, it's him that he actually drew it out. And uh, so we've always used it, even with the go-kart, when Josh was racing the go-kart. And we just kind of moved it over to the mini sprint when Josh went to that and then just kind of moved it over to uh, the other one. You know, a good question about the mini sprint. You told me once that Josh learned to drive a micro with the, a sprint car steering wheel. Is <laughs> that true? Yeah, that's true. And what was the purpose of it? Because um, normally what they did with them cars, and Josh will tell you, they had a little steering wheel on them, something like a go-kart. Because most of them guys came through go-karts. And I told Josh, no, uh, you're going to race a 15-inch steering wheel like a real steering wheel. And so you can really actually get the feel of how far to turn it or how far not to turn it. Because Josh told me one time it felt like a semi-truck wheel at times <laughs> compared to the other one. Is that true? Um, it was, it was kind of – it was slower, you know, but I – I really, I guess, I I liked it, you know. Like, it, it does, like, it widen you out and slow you down a little bit with the steering. And, you know, I, I typically always try and slow my steering down. As, that way I don't overdrive the car because I have a tendency of getting, getting a little happy on the wheel. So I try and everything I do is try and move my arms down to slow down what I'm doing. So that way I don't overreact. How, how big did it feel in a micro, though? Like, did it take up quite a bit of space compared to the it other did, one? It did, but I think that car that I drove, if I remember right, it had a rack and pinion in it, and it had a real wide body on it. It was almost like a like a Maxim sprint car body at that time. So there was, it was set up for, you know, a grown man, and I was still pretty young at that point. So I remember a lot of cockpit room in that car for whatever reason. Do you believe that, what do you believe is the best way to move up from, if you were getting a kid, like let's say me and Brandon who have young kids, yeah, what would you say is the best way to start in racing around here? Um, probably that cage card thing. It seems like a lot of people are doing that, and um, uh, yeah, I think that's that's a good way. I mean, uh, I remember doing cars with no suspension, then getting a car with the suspension, and it was like, ooh, this is nice. And then I got one with the motor, and it was like, oh, wow, like this is, <laughs> now we got something here, you know. And, you know, it was, it's just kind of one of them things. You step up, and, you know, uh, luckily every every step I've gone faster, I've liked it, you know, even more. So it was just kind of one of those kids that was always hell-bent on going fast. Now, what did what did you start in? Because I, I met you when you were doing micros. I, I assuming you were doing go-karts before, right? Um, yeah, I, I did go-karts. And um, my my grandpa, he started me, bought me an Al Unser Jr. Uh, go-kart. Um, it, and uh, it, was a, it was a really cool cart. Um, looked just like Al Unser's IndyCar. I had like a three-horse Briggs on or something. I was like three. I couldn't reach the pedals. You know, he used to sit me on his lap and drive it, you know. And then I got to be, you know, just tall enough where I could go, and yeah. th they let me go. And the neighbor's cat got loose, and I tried to run it over. And anyway, uh, the neighbor came over all mad, and my grandpa told him to fuck off and go in the house, you know. <laughs> and it, it's kind of cool because, you know, like, 
you know, some people, you know, they'll, they'll let their kids get in trouble or, you know, chew their ass a little bit. You know, even me with my kids, I'm a little hard on them. But, you know, he just told this guy he was wrong, you know, and go away. And I was like, man, that's that's really cool. But, yeah, that's sometimes even now some big guy will come over and try and fight me. I'm like, Grandpa's got this one for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stand in here and watch him do his work. If he needs help, I'll come help him. But Speak, I haven't seen it yet. Speaking so. of fights. Didn't you almost get stabbed at a racetrack in the pits? Yeah. Um, yeah, I won't mention the lady's name, but, yeah, she got really carried away. And yeah, she actually came up and told my mother-in-law that uh, she was going to stab me. Of course, she freaked out because they were the, you know, uh, they were, they, you know, they were just really people that had not really been around that type of people and uh, so anyway she came and told me and so I went over and talked to the sheriff and he went over and asked her what her business was and she said I come here to stab him and uh, guy said well come with me (laughs) was that a midwest or what was that midwest yeah and those people got crazier in hell out there man and uh, (laughs) what did you do to piss her off well to really tell you the whole story, I got to put names with it, and I really don't want to put names <laughs> with it. But uh, that's that's to safeguard it, right? <laughs> uh, well, the old, the old gal was, you know, uh, goofy, and uh, but we had we had some excitement out there in the eighties, and uh, I can tell a story when I was sitting in the stands of Midwest, and uh, and I was a huge fan of yours. I, I think that when you were sitting in the car, when you were wheel packing. You come by and, and you just sat in the car and you look so much like Sammy Swindell. Some I don't know what it was, but it, you, the way Got you sat in that 14J, here. you looked just like Sammy in his cars. And and I and you were obviously really competitive and won a lot of races. But I think that uh, uh, some stuff that rubs some people. And maybe I'm getting the story wrong, but you can correct me. But you would win a heat or a trophy dash, and you'd come out in the front, and then your crew would come out in the back of a pickup and. Of course, uh, nobody likes a winner, so you were getting booed. While then, your crew was flipping off the fans, and and it was just it just riled everybody up, and it just made for some exciting times. But I don't know if that had anything to do with you. Just maybe she took it personally, or flipping her off personally, or what the deal was. But uh, uh, it was it was exciting times, and I, I thought for uh, a little kid like me, that was kind of cool to see. Though they were there was just a lot of a lot of excitement uh, in those times. Yeah. Well, Pete Lycom. Uh, you know, obviously, Pete was the guy that owned Midwest at yeah. that time. And Pete Lycom was paying Lloyd Beckman 100 bucks a week to show up, to draw a crowd. And so one day Pete says to me, you know, a good promoter has a good guy and a bad guy. <laughs> and so he tells me, I said, oh, really? And I said, well, who's the good guy? And he tells me Lloyd Beckman. And I go, well, who's the bad guy? And Pete said, it's you. And I said, well, I don't think I really want to be. And he goes, no, we'll make you the bad guy. Well, before it was over with, Pete came over and told me, you got to stop because the people are starting to tear the grandstands down. He says, I just can't have it. And it it just, you know, um, the one that probably sticks out in my mind is, you know, you go out there and you do the very best you can. And so you're fortunate enough to win. And then they're standing there booing you for it. 
And so one night I thought I'd had enough. And so the, Mike King was doing the interview, and he, the question is, is, you know, well, what do you think of the racetrack tonight? They always ask that really dumb question. <laughs> and uh, so I told him, I said, well, uh, I don't think much about the racetrack. I said, the only thing I got to say to these Boone fans, I think you're pricks. And I turned around and walked off, and I mean, they went crazy. (laughs) That's when Pete told me I had to stop. (laughs) And, uh, you know, got a little flack over that one. But, uh, you know, there's just sometimes you feel that way, you know. Now, I make it sound like that happened every week, but it, it may have happened once, but that's just something that I remember uh, that they just got the crowd riled up in that uh, one time. No, it, it was an ongoing thing, and, and uh, but uh, I always thought I evened the score when I sold them the T-shirts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Speaking of, what, what are these T-shirts about? Because I, I've seen people say that there's, we see now with like the Anybody But Shots T-shirts, but you innovated the Anybody but Riggins t-shirts out there. And it was you behind the whole damn thing. Yeah. So let's hear what it was. Cause I know the story. I want to hear, I want to know, let well, everybody understand uh, why. Kind of the deal at the time was I went and got some really nice, t- what I thought was nice t-shirts. They were maybe four or five colors. I ain't selling nothing. <laughs> and so in return, I thought, well, hell, you know, you can control the whole deal if you just make one that, they really want. So I go down to the screen printing place, ask them the cheapest T-shirt they had, and they sell me these T-shirts for like a buck and a quarter a piece, and I, it just one color, anybody but Riggins. Well, then I got this friend of mine that's selling them, but they don't know they're mine. <laughs> and so he's going to different shops and like Steve Grossenbacher and people like that and tell him how bad he hates me and all this. And they're buying them, but then they're telling this guy what they think. I'm a jerk. Well, this guy, at the end of the night, had come back and tell me what everybody said. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which... And then they'd come up, like, Sunday night and said, can I borrow something? Oh, what the hell do I want to loan you something for? (laughs) But I I never told them till the end. And at the end of the year, uh, they finally made a comment about it. And I said, yeah, I just want to thank everybody for the money because they were mine. (laughs) How'd that go over? (laughs) Then they tore the grandstands down. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that's enough about that. But, you know. So would you say Lloyd Beckman was your biggest rival or? No. Who would would be your biggest rival? I didn't really... uh, I respected Lloyd Beckman to the fullest. He might have had a personality of mud, in my opinion, but he was one of the great, great short track racers. I respected Lloyd. Um, There's a few others that I didn't, um, but I really didn't... um, I didn't really see, you know, really those people as um, that type of deal. if you have the attitude when you run go into a place, um, who in the hell is going to run second because it ain't going to be me? And you really don't look at people in that way as your competitor because you just got this frame of mind that you're going to win. Well, it's almost good that you think that way because if you were to think that way that you have one guy that i got to focus on beating him, 
as opposed to what you're saying that I'm just focusing on who's in front of me and then I want to beat them. To me, that actually works to your advantage because you're almost clear minded going into the race, right? Well, um, see the, the way they had it set up back then, um, the high point man went to the back of everything, heat race feature and, um, kind of like how Eagle is right now, right? Is that, is that how the point inversion works, Josh? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's that way. It's it's um, there's the final final invert cars, you know, that go behind, but that's okay. the four in front of the B. But that's the guys that made the last spot. But yeah, it's pretty inverted. They do about the same way. I mean, yeah. it's it, it. I I don't. I just don't see where it's changed because you might have had to start back there. And, and today you may, but if you didn't get some yellows right at the right time, um, you weren't going to catch the leader. I mean, you, you just weren't going to win. So you kind of had to have that frame of mind, too, that when it's getting towards the end, I'm going to get the best out of this I can. Another question I have about Midwest Speedway era. Um, you were driving the, the 14J Budweiser Larson Racing Engines, was it? Yeah. And there was one year it seemed like you blew 18 motors out of out of 19 weeks or something like that. It was a lot of motors you went through. And and this is probably a dumb question, but were you guys experimenting with motors or what was going on there that I mean I assume you if you knew what was going on then you wouldn't have blown all those motors, but were there some experimenting going on or what was going on that year that you lost a lot of motors? Well, when John Larson bought that car from John Tucker, uh, that was basically John's experimental for his motors he was selling to the open market. But what caused that huge problem that year was um, John had bought some brand-new Barnes dry sumps, and they weren't blowing up. It just wasn't siphoning the oil back out to the tank, uh, it was just pumping everything to the top. So people thought the thing blew up, but it really didn't blow up. It was just oil being pumped out the uh, breathers. Mm-hmm. And um, But we, um, you know, John changed like three of them, uh, the Barnes deal, and it kept doing it. Well, then he got a hold of Barnes and said, hey, you know, you've got a real problem here. And then... Uh, Obviously, John got a hold of a good one, and uh, the problem went away. But uh, that was the problem. That had to be a frustrating year, trying to go out there and win some races and just keep having these mechanical issues. Well, John was – John Larson um, was all-or-nothing guy. You could drive your butt off and run second, and that was nothing to him. It was winner, (laughs) winner nothing with John um, Tucker was in it for entertainment. Yeah. Total, to, totally two different personalities. Did you have a favorite car owner to drive for? It was probably, you know, as when I really think about it, it was actually Larson uh, due to the fact that um, he was so hardcore and uh, so was I. And it's probably why we lasted. Um, six years or whatever and um john larson never taught me a darn thing about driving a race car he taught me the business of owning a race car that's what larson taught me 
You know, you, I remember you were big, you're, you still are good friends with the McCarls. Because you would get, when I would let her cars, it was, oh, I got this from, from Terry's dad. And this is Josh's car this year. Tell me, tell me kind of how that came to be with the McCarls and you, like how you guys kind of met. And- <laughs> well, it actually started with Leonard, uh, Terry McCarl's dad. And he was a, a tough old, I mean, he was a skinny little root. But, man, that guy had fight as a drop of a hat. And uh, Leonard got into it with a guy over in Oskaloosa, Iowa, one night. And I thought that was kind of cool. Well, it wasn't too long later I got into it with a guy at Knoxville, and Leonard came over and said, you need some help? And I, said, I told him, hell no, I don't need any help. <laughs> <laughs> and so Leonard and I just hit it off. And um, I, uh, I sent Josh over to Leonard's shop. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Josh, can tell, Josh can tell that story. But, uh, I just thought Josh needed to see some, <laughs> meet Leonard McCarl before the old guy well, let's got hear it. Yeah, yeah on, well, we, he, he built some motors for us and, and that kind of stuff. And I just always liked hanging out with him. He was, he was uh, you know, really good at building motors and working on race cars. And he was always just tinkering in his shop. And he loved it, you know, every minute he could do that. And um, Tough and rough, but very very cool and you know teach people anything and and uh it was i had a lot of fun and you know terry's really good and it's uh i always like like seeing them guys when we go over to knoxville or whatever and just stopping by and saying hi because they're they're always you know it's the same thing different day you know i mean terry's getting older and you know austin and and carson are getting really good but they just uh you know they're just hardcore race people you know they been doing that since the 70s i think it's so cool that they they go all over and just you know push you know you ran knoxville weekly for a while did they did they help you out at all when you were were doing that deal um i was kind of in a weird place when i was in uh iowa Uh, i'll share that story just for a little bit because that's kind of fun but we uh we moved over there. I, I came out of Houston. I went to school to learn how to build engines. And we went over there, and, and Al Parker gave me a job and everything. But we couldn't find a house anywhere. And um, we lived at the campground all one summer. And uh, That doesn't sound like a bad idea. I mean, if you're racing all summer long, living yeah, at the campground? Just, well, we weren't <laughs> racing. We, I, I lived there and worked there, and we, we raced a couple nights. And... Uh, um, the motor jumped, the rear end jumped out of gear and the motor went like 10-2 and, and, uh, yeah, it was hard days. Um, lived at a little house in, uh, Newton. We finally, finally got a house, but it didn't have a garage or nothing. And, uh, so my grandpa, he, he'd come over and, uh, he like lived with us from like Wednesday to Sunday Jeez. and, uh, crashed on the couch and, um, it, I worked third shift at Vermeer at that point and, uh. You know, but I think Grandpa enjoyed it. I mean, we were out there. It sucked now. I mean, like, looking back at it, we got, you know, but uh, doing all the maintenance on a rock driveway and, you know, just there was a nice car wash in Newton, you know, and we'd spend more time there because it was nicer than what we had to work with at home, you know. It's like, this is rough. And 
But I think Grandpa really enjoyed it. He's got to spend a lot of time with Gemma and, and play. And, and uh, you know, I'd come home from work and tippy-toe in. And about noon, he'd come in there and wake me up real nice, you know, with, you know, shake the shit out of me. You know, it's it's noon. Uh, we better get this done before you go back to work. And uh, I'm like, holy shit, you know. Like, thanks for letting me sleep four hours, you know. I'll, let's get it done then, you know. And uh, it was... Uh, it, Knoxville was, it was very demanding. And I, you know, I look at that time and it's like, man, if I just would have had like a shop and, you know, a few of the tangibles over there, you know, like we probably could have done a lot better, you know, but it was just, we were not set up to go over there. And I was working 60 hours a week and just trying to, trying to get out of my college rut, you know, pretty young yet, you know, so it was, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, we there was nights we'd do good, and then other nights we'd we'd just you know the you know tear something up or whatever. It's it's Knoxville's one of the places you get if if you don't make the invert if you're back there about tenth in the pack it's it's a car eater you know and it's it's uh, you really got to time in good and uh, I and if I, it seemed like if I ever timed in good the motor blew up or something you know we just. For whatever, you know, they go fastest right before they die. And, you know, it was just kind of a saga. But it, it was a it was a lot of fun. And, you know, the thing I enjoyed more about it was the family time and stuff. Because, you know, we weren't, you know, I was living, you know, a little ways from home. And before that, I'd been in Texas. So it was just nice to spend time together and go race. And just everybody kind of roll over there and have fun with it. Now, did you ever have the idea to pull a Robert Bell and just cut a damn hole in the side of your house and build a car in the living room? I did not. I did not. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think anybody would have went for that. I was renting the place, you know. I mean, it wouldn't have mattered. I don't think I got my deposit back anyway. But, you know, it was... Uh, I, I didn't, you know, I... Uh, no. So you, you mentioned sacrifices of running Knoxville. You had to make a sacrifice and run Knoxville weekly. I heard living a dollar a day and eating McDonald's every day. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, yeah, 1977 was. Um, <clears throat> the worst part about it is when I think back on it, uh, why were you even trying to do it? Because you didn't have the money to do it. And um, I'd sold a house sold everything I had and went and bought this car and um, to really actually prove a point, uh, which I thought I was proving a point. I don't know if anybody ever thought I did, but um, I was going to show the world that, you know, I could actually drive one. And and, uh, and it was just, uh, but as it really figured out that by the time I paid everything that I needed to pay, um, I had a dollar, I had $31 left out of a month's paycheck. So I ate 364 days in a row at McDonald's for 97 cents a day. What did you eat? Hmm? What was it that you ate there? Well, you could get a hamburger, a fry, and a medium drink for 97 cents. This is 1977. Wow. <laughs> that's like 12 bucks now. Yeah, that's, that's expensive. <laughs> and the hamburgers were big enough you could actually get full off of it. Yeah, you know, well, you know, it's kind of like Josh was talking about his diet. Yeah. You know, you shrink your stomach enough, you know, you don't know it don't take a whole lot to fill it up. Man, I didn't have a car to drive back and forth to work, and I'm living on... 
27th and Vine, in this a $60 month uh, efficiency apartment. I'm God, I would love to pay that much for rent right now. <laughs> Vine to the Havelock Shops on 68 and Havelock Avenue. Then I'd get off at 3, and then I'd walk over to um, 56 and Holdridge, where this guy actually had a garage, work on the car till about 10, and then go back, walk back to the efficiency apartment. And I, that's, that's all I did. And uh, thank God I met my wife, and the uh, rest of it's history. You got a garage. You got a garage now. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah that's, that's what I, a lot of fans don't understand is the sacrifices that you as race team owners and drivers and crews go through just to get it to the track. And when you actually think about it, you only spend – 20 minutes on the track on a night if you're lucky. I mean, I barring any crashing, but so you guys work endless hours in the shop every night to play for 20 minutes. But a lot of fans think you show up at the racetrack and you play, and that's that's all you have to do. They don't understand the sacrifices hey, that you guys got to go. These through. guys are sprint car drivers, not tuner drivers. All right. Yeah. Well, um, the the kind of the. Well, back then, I always thought it would be the greatest thing because I was working at the railroad like Josh is now, and uh, I hated the place as much as he hates, hates it today. But anyway, um, I thought the greatest thing in the world would be if I could just get up in the morning and go to the garage and work on a race car all day. Well, now I'm 75 years old, and Still, that's, that's what you're doing. That's Still what I'm doing. <laughs> but the older you get, you find out that the younger guys – they start taking things away from you because you're not <laughs> capable anymore. <laughs> so you turn into the parts runner. <laughs> no, you're just home all day so they can, you can go run and get parts while they're at work. Right. That's, but yeah, I noticed that yeah. here in the last couple of years, Josh has been sending me notes because I can't get the parts. <laughs> yeah, here, Grandpa, here's the number you're looking for. I think it's his glasses. He's, he's all bloodshot in the eyes right now because he finally got LASIK, you know, because I don't think he could, you know, he'd be you know, really down there looking at the old Speedway catalog, and I think he was scribbling some wrong digits, and I was like, here, let me pull that out on my phone and, you know, <laughs> let me text it to you, and he's like, ah, oh, that ain't going to work. I'll just I'm order like, it online okay, and just go it pick it up. Then, you know, <laughs> He, he told me the other. He doesn't day. understand texting yet. It's, <laughs> no. He's got a smartphone, but yeah, yeah it's been a while. So he, has, he probably just got that recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, he, well, um, yeah, it, it's really kind of it to me now. It's it's fun because I can see Josh maturing, getting better all the time, and then some of the younger guys that help him. And really, actually, it's kind of getting to the point that it's kind of enjoyable. I, the worst part of this deal is, and when you guys get to this point and you have children that start doing it, then all of a sudden you get into, I'll stand, I have to get off by myself. I can't be around people at the racetrack because I talk to myself. And I, oh, shit, don't do that. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> good job, Josh. <laughs> it, but, you know, um, I could care less about this race car. The only thing I'm concerned about is josh's safety and um we had a conversation one night was pretty heated and he didn't want to you guys had a heated conversation no way over the hans device where that where it (laughs) and he said uh, i'm not wearing it and i said well if you don't 
I said, uh, I'm pretty good with a hacksaw. And he's always giving me hell about getting out that hacksaw. He likes a cutting wheel, and I just cut it, you know, with a hacksaw. And I said, I'll cut the frame in half. And, well, if you use a hacksaw, you're using your arms. Makes sense, yeah. You know, you use a cutting right. wheel, and you just stand there and go, <laughs> what the hell? Way less work. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Josh told makes me sense. numerous times, right. you know, Grandpa, quit working harder, work smarter. And I go, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Uh, so then sometimes I'll just, Josh, I'll just do this tomorrow. And then he kind of goes away, and then I get to do <laughs> it. <by the way. laughs> then you do it the next day, I'm it's like, done. Who the hell cut this off? You know, it's all, yeah, he's pretty good with the grinder, though. I don't give him credit. He, he don't. He doesn't butcher stuff. I've seen a lot of that. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Make sure you turn in next week for part two of Storytime with the Riggins here on Quick Time, the podcast. See ya. Come on. If you see it in the ride when they try to lie, you the bullet hole in a stop sign kind, then I'm right there with you. Put your drinks up high for my country phone. My country phone. I'm out here on a thousand acre plot of land And I can't hear him hating on me, I'm a modest man Talking weird, Jimmy Mathers and he got a plan And when he talk, I listen to him, that's a lot of man He said we need to take it back to the root of it I put on for the country, that's the truth of it I'm talking last millennium, we was repping it Before anybody had accepted it We introduced him to the cooler on the tailgate Full of cold natty light, playing satellite A little day while we misbehave, okay Once we figured the game out, we go play a generation of people that love Tupac And hey, we banging it in the boondocks Now put your drink in the air if you ain't scared Them folks been doing that thing, yeah Country fried, baptizing gravy Can't wash off what the good Lord meets you No matter how far that highway goes An old dirt road to get you home Come on. If you see it in the ride when they try to live You the bullet hole in a stop sign kind Then I'm right there with you Put your drinks up high for my country phone My country phone me and Bubba, we've been doing this a long while. It sure seems a lot longer than a country mile. Hollywood look good, full of fake friends. I never thought we could ever be here again. Time heals, one fell, one came up. Back together, son, we gon' tear this thing up. A lot of talkers and I ain't gotta name them. They wanna be us, hell, I can't blame them. So looky here, cold beer on a tailgate. Been doing this for some years, y'all so late. So banging out cast and a little George Strait. Hot damn, cold Ford, back with Bubba K. Country fried, baptizing gravy Can't wash off what the good Lord made you No matter how far that highway goes An old dirt road to get you home Come on. If you see it in the ride when they try to live You the bullet hole in a stop sign kind Then I'm right there with you Put your drinks up high for my country phone hey. My country phone hey. Everything real funny till the money come Now they want some, when they ain't wanted none And that's just how the thing go when you get her done We did it, son, yeah, we did it, son We was drinking Jim Beam by the handle Me and Steven Herndon loading up ammo Bumping good at my real tree camo This white boy really think he Rambo Cut the beat on, I bet his ass jammed, though You don't like it straight to hell, is where you can go 12-pointer hanging right up on the mantle You don't like the program, change the channel what the good Lord made you No matter how far that highway goes An old dirt road to get you home Come on. If you see it in the ride when they try to lie You the bullet hole in a stop sign Now that I'm right there with you Put your drinks up high for my country phone hey. My country phone hey.